Well, good morning again, church. Uh, if you would join me in opening your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. Uh, and if you're using the uh, Black Pew Bible in front of you, I believe that's on page 688. Lamentations chapter 3. And Lord willing, uh, the next three Sundays, I hope to uh, be able to wrap up this book with you all. So this Sunday will be chapter 3, next Sunday will be chapter 4, and then two Sundays after that will be chapter 5. So Lamentations chapter 3. And as was mentioned uh, this morning, it is indeed a lot of verses. Uh, And I do plan to preach through all 66 verses this morning, but Uh, For the sake of scripture reading, I will just read through uh, the first half, so verses 1 through 33. Let's all stand for the reading of God's word. Lamentations chapter 3. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has besieged, or he has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the objects of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. 
You may be seated. This is the Word of God. The same boiling water that softens the potato hardens the egg. The same fire that melts the butter hardens the steel. The same air that softens the cracker hardens the bread. I'm not sure whether or not you guys have heard these quotes before, uh, but I guarantee you, you stay on social media long enough and you will see these show up on your feed in one way or another. These are the common phrases you will see reposted on your Monday morning inspirational or on a meme from that influencer trying to instill passion to all their millions of followers. And these quotes all communicate the same thing. You are not defined by what is around you. You are defined by how you respond to it. You can choose to thrive under adversity or get crushed by its difficulties. Your perspective determines what you experience. The boiling water, the fire, the air never changes. It is how you look at it that determines your outcome. And as cliche as these quotes may sound, this is a lesson that is true in all stations of life. And it's a lesson that Jeremiah, the author of Lamentations, is getting a crash course in right now. And as we study this chapter, as we study Lamentations chapter 3, as you may not have already been able to tell by what you've read, what we will learn from this chapter is that when you are in circumstances that seem hopeless, the key to rescue is not necessarily found in seeing your circumstances change, but in what your heart is focusing on. Specifically, hope is found in focusing on the character and the nature of God. But before we dive into Lamentations chapter 3, let's set up some background to this book since I know it's basically been uh, about a year since we were actually last in it. The book of Lamentations, it's written around 586 BC by who I've mentioned before, the prophet Jeremiah. And it occurs right after the nation of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, have been taken captive and ransacked by the Babylonians. And even to this day, this captivity still ranks in history as one of the most raw and inhumane images of human suffering. The temple of God was completely torn to pieces, and the citizens of Judah endured nationwide famine, kidnapping, slavery, and destruction. It was a complete massacre on every end. But as horrendous as this exile was, this suffering was not actually entirely unwarranted. You see, the nation of Judah was meant to be God's people, but they drifted away from God over time. What they did was they offered God lip service and praise and rituals, but inside their hearts were not genuine. They began to tolerate idolatry, adultery, immorality, and murder, while thinking all along that as long as I go through these rituals, as long as I go through these symbols that God tells me to do, well, I'll still be considered holy. And it had come to a point where that fake 
religious hypocrisy that they were cultivating just grew too much. And God had to judge and discipline those sins, particularly through the Babylonians. And the Book of Lamentations is a series of poems that describe what it is like to be in the middle of this captivity, what it's like to be an eyewitness to the Babylonian exile. And in chapter 1, Jeremiah gives us the scene for lament. And in this first chapter, Jeremiah weeps over the fact that the depravity of Jerusalem's sin has had a head-on collision with the righteous judgment of God. Next chapter, in chapter 2, it doesn't get much better. In chapter 2, now, it feels like God is an enemy. It feels like God is furious, and Jeremiah pours out completely what that fury feels like in hopes that God will relent. But chapter 3, the chapter we're in today, suddenly there is a perspective change. The circumstances of Judah and Jerusalem have remained exactly the same. But Jeremiah drastically changes, and he begins to respond and relate differently to what is going on around him. And it is this chapter, chapter 3, that is the climax of the entire book of Lamentations. Unlike the earlier chapters in Lamentations, this one is a triple acrostic poem. So chapter 1 and chapter 2 were both acrostic poems, basically each verse devoted to a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But in this chapter, chapter 3 is now three verses devoted to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So 22 letters in your Hebrew alphabet times 3, that's why it's 66 verses. And I believe that that's intentional. I believe he makes this a triple acrostic because it is this chapter, really, that shapes the entire theological foundations of this entire book. It is this chapter that reveals who God is and what exactly Jeremiah is trusting in. He's still lamenting, but there's a shift. As he recognizes his circumstances, he also begins to slowly rehearse to himself what he knows about God. And it is as he does this that the God who once seemed like an enemy is actually one of the strongest allies he could have ever asked for. For our study today, I've divided this chapter into four sections. Four sections. First section, holding on to hope. Next section, mourning mercies. After that, watchful waiting. And then lastly, divine deliverance. And each section in this, cha- in this chapter represents a different stage in the evolution of Jeremiah's perspective as he tries to respond to the cards that he has been dealt. And I believe these stages depict a similar pattern for us as well to follow when it feels like our circumstances in themselves offer no hope as well. Jeremiah's lament in this chapter is an example for us of how we can bring ourselves to a place where we not only suffer with endurance, but we suffer with hope. And so let's dive into our text today. Our first section, holding on to hope. Holding on to hope. And we see that in verses 1 through 21. In chapter 3, the book begins to pivot. In chapters 1 and 2, Jeremiah talked about the destruction from the vantage point of Jerusalem. 
But as you start to see here, Jeremiah begins now to speak in the first person. Instead of talking about Jerusalem as a daughter or a widow like he's done in previous chapters, Jeremiah switches now to I and me language. Just look at a few of the verses here. I am the man who has seen affliction. I call and cry for help. I have become the laughingstock. And I think Jeremiah does this to make the suffering seem much more personal. To show that he, as an individual now, is identifying with all the destruction that is poured out on him and his fellow citizens. It's as if he's saying to his readers, this is what God has done directly to me. And just look at how he describes this suffering on his own terms. Verse 8, though I, though I cry and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. His prayers have nowhere to land. You cry out, you cry out, you hope in prayer, and yet it feels like nothing happens. Verse 15, he has sated me, or other translations will have, he has made me drink wormwood. And wormwood is an incredibly bitter herb. And the thing about bitter drinks is that they don't actually quench your thirst. They often end up making you more thirsty. And so Jeremiah is parched. He's crying out for a drink. And all he can get to satisfy himself is just bitter juice. And it finally culminates now in verses 17 through 18. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. This is spiritual depression in its most complete form. There's no desire for life. There's nothing here to look forward to. No reason to take a step further. Jeremiah cannot even remember the last time he was happy, and he wonders if life, if life is worth living. And if you were to leave it at just these 18 verses, there would be absolutely no room for optimism. All you get is a devastating weight of suffering with absolutely no respite. But thankfully, this is not an 18-verse chapter. And just before Jeremiah tosses in his hat and just gives up, suddenly we begin to see a pivot. He cries out to God in verses 19 through 20, Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and it is bowed down within me. Just as he says, I cannot go on any longer, something changes. Just as his prayers feel like they are getting rejected, he desperately offers up now just one more final prayer to God. And that verb, remember, in the opening of verse 19 is actually in the Hebrew an imperative tense or command. He asks God specifically to remember everything that they have suffered through physically. It intensifies then in the next verse when he turns it not just to physical suffering, but to his own soul. He wants God to take note of his spiritual depression as well. This call to remember is a call for the Lord to take notice of his suffering and graciously act on his behalf. This call to remember is a call for the Lord to take notice of his suffering and graciously act on his behalf. And then this pivot finally comes full circle in verse 
21. In verse 21, there is the emphatic declaration, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Just as hope has perished, he suddenly finds it. And let's look at this verse in particular. Notice the opening word, but. That opening word, but, indicates a turning of some kind, a contrast to his past. Something has changed. Second, notice he has to call it to mind. It took effort. It took intentionality. He realizes that he actually has to fight for hope. This requires his own strength. He's not wallowing in sadness and just hoping that God will just find him. What Jeremiah does here is he actively disciplines his mind to remind himself of the hope he has in God again. As Christians, we know we have the greatest promise of hope in Jesus Christ. But we also know the reality of living in our broken world is that many believers do struggle with spiritual depression. And we will all have times in our lives where it feels like just another second of life. It's excruciating agony. But as Scripture testifies, even in those darkest moments, God has not left you and he will not leave you. Christ's death for you has never changed and what he has secured for you is unshakable. However, sometimes to renew that hope in your heart, you do have to fight for it. You have to discipline your heart and push out the temptation to despair and call to mind again exactly what it is that you believe. Or in other words, you have to preach to yourself. The best preacher for your heart sometimes is not Pastor Stephen, Pastor Daniel, or Pastor Ryan. The best preacher for your heart sometimes is not John Piper, John MacArthur, or Charles Spurgeon. The best preacher for your heart sometimes is you. And in your deepest sufferings, you need to take God's word captive into your own heart, even when your feelings may tell you otherwise. You need to call to mind what you've learned all along from those Sunday sermons, from those daily devotionals, or every Sunday school you've attended. You need to bring yourself back to all those memory verses you've stored up in your heart all those years of your life as a Christian. And slowly you go at your heart and slowly you chip away with them. The best counsel often comes from within. And that's what we start to see unravel here. As Jeremiah surveys everything that's around him, he preaches to himself one last time to find hope. And what is specifically the object of his hope? Or what is, is, what is his hope centered on? We see it in verses 22 through 24, or the next section, the mercies of the Lord. So that brings us now to section 2. So we've had holding on to hope. Now our next section, mourning mercies. Mourning mercies. And we see that in verses 22 through 24. These, may be, these verses may be some of the most beautiful words in all of your Bibles. I mean, even today as we've sung in worship, we've rehearsed them over and over again. Lamentation certainly is not an easy book to go through. The earlier chapters paint some of the saddest pictures in all of Scripture. 
But sometimes we need to be brought completely low just to see how wonderful God's mercy is. And let's read those verses again. Verses 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new each morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. When the bottom has completely fallen out, when there is no place for hope in your circumstances, Jeremiah declares here that hope is found in the steadfast love of the Lord. And that word, steadfast love, is actually a common word used throughout the Old Testament. It's captured in this Hebrew word, hesed. And hesed is used, is a word used to describe a love, a love that is not just caught up in emotions. It is not a love that is just ordinary kindness and friendship. It is a love that is loyal and faithful, a love that shows amazing grace when it is never deserved. About eight months ago, I had the blessing of getting married. And I can say with all my heart, I love my wife, Vania. And through our dating and engagement and building up to that wedding day, I think we would both say we were very eager and very excited to get married. But what our pastors reminded us in premarital counseling is certainly, yes, those emotions and excitement is good, but they also reminded us we do live in a world where marriages sadly fall apart. And to stay in marriage, the key to a strong marriage is not necessarily found in those excitement and those emotions, but it's found in you displaying a love that will always be present and always extend itself, even when honeymoons fade. A love that extends itself even during times when sin may corrupt your affections. A love that is always extended, even when difficulties come that test the both of you. A love that always abounds, a love that is always expressed, even during times when the world will tell you that the easier thing for you to do is actually to not love. Because after all, what we learned from our pastors in premarital counseling was that the beauty of marriage is not found in those emotions or those excitements or those affections you may initially have for one another, but the beauty in marriage is found in displaying to your spouse and to the people around you that there is such a love that continues to abide and a love that continues to abound even when the other party may not always reciprocate it. A love that ultimately stems from the nature and person of God. A love that reflects God's faithful character and his commitment to keeping his covenants and his word. Because God's love, God's hesed, is the only example of a love that never ends and always abounds. God's hesed will never divorce you. It will never abandon you. It does not waver with circumstances, but it always remains unconditional. Now the next portion, his mercies never come to an end. In other words, God's mercies are everlasting. It never ceases. They never run out. You may think you have come to a point in your life where God's mercy surely has run out for you. Surely my sin is too great for God's mercy. Surely my suffering is too great for God to be present. But what the Lord declares in this verse is that that is not true. 
And there's an even more finer detail to this mercy. This mercy is new every morning. And I think that this is an exceptionally remarkable statement. Because if you're living in Jerusalem in the time of exile, I'm pretty sure you wake up each morning and you look through your window and mercy is probably the last word that comes to your mind. But Jeremiah here says that they are new every morning. Jeremiah recognizes here that God is unchanging. And even in the smoke of Jerusalem's ruins, a ray of hope always shines through each morning. Every day, Jeremiah recognizes, can be an opportunity for a disobedient people to turn back and restore themselves to God. And this, this is how God works in our lives. He brings us new mercy each morning. We never have to live on yesterday's blessings. Every day is a new opportunity for you to experience the mercy of God. It is new every morning. Whatever troubles, whatever sin, whatever pain you may wake up your day with, God will meet you there with the mercy you need. His mercy will be there for you with that test that you are worried about. His mercy will be there to help you face the uncertainty at your job. His mercy will be there to help you care for that rebellious child. Whatever it may be, when it comes, you can trust according to God's promise that his mercy will be there for you in that hour according to your need. John Piper had this to say about this verse. God will not expect you to carry one more straw with these present mercies. When the next straw is added, the mercies will be new. So we must not compound today's load with fretting over tomorrow's. We must not doubt God and say, I have no more strength, so tomorrow will be impossible to live. That is not true. You will not be asked to live tomorrow on today's strength. What you need today is not tomorrow's strength, but today's faith that tomorrow's mercies will be new and will be enough. Even in what feels like our darkest days, there will always be something new each morning that you can point to and you can say, I do not deserve that. That is truly from the grace of God. And realize that Jeremiah is able to proclaim this even though he has not seen the ultimate display of God's mercy. And that is Jesus Christ. And it is Christ who is a full demonstration of what it means to have new mercies every morning. Because every day Christ is there with his blood to cover the multitude of sins that you may commit. Every day Christ is there to bear each one of your burdens. And every day Christ remains there, seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. So how much more confidently ought we to declare that his mercies are new each morning? And as a result of this truth, there is nothing more than the author can simply say, but great is your faithfulness. Faithfulness is God's fidelity and commitment and his certainty in trustworthiness. Or to put it another way, faithfulness means God is always worthy of eternal trust, no matter how unlikely his promises may seem. And today we will later sing, great is thy faithfulness. And indeed, it is a beautiful hymn 
But the true measure of whether you believe that is not whether you can sing it today, this morning, during Sunday service, but can you sing it with a broken heart? Can you sing it with tears flowing out when there still seems to be no hope? Can you still bring your lips to say, great is thy faithfulness? And faithfulness is not something that is relative or subjective or contingent. You cannot be kind of faithful. You either are or you are not. And while we often struggle with faithfulness, God is unchanging and God is true. And so he is always faithful. And for that, for that we can always trust God despite our circumstances. Great is our fickleness but great indeed is his faithfulness. Finally, verse 24 represents a complete reversal of what we've read in verse 18. The Lord is his portion, meaning that Jeremiah can be fully content in what God has to offer and God alone. Jeremiah now realizes that while he at once had no hope, now he can come to God and find full satisfaction. In just these three verses, we see a sudden change. Jeremiah goes from having his hope perish now to confidently declaring that he will indeed actually hope in the Lord. So that's our second section, morning mercies. Our third section, watchful waiting. Holding on to hope, morning mercies, and now watchful waiting. And we see that in verses 25 through 33. In light of God's mercies being new each morning, how should we respond? Well, as these next verses lay out, we must simply wait for God. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Certainly, yes, Jeremiah has hope in the Lord again, but he must still wait on the Lord to bring Jerusalem's restoration in God's own timing. He must still learn to wait. It does not happen immediately. And this is something that is just so counterintuitive to how we live and think. Today, we live in a world that really is all about reducing our wait times. We strive after and we want instant entertainment. We want instant wealth. We want instant growth. We want instant gratification. One of the fun parts about my college experience was that Disneyland was actually not too far from where I went to school. And if you've ever been to Disneyland, you know you have to have your day mapped out perfectly. You need to know when's the perfect time of day for you to ride Space Mountain, and then you have to coordinate it perfectly for when to trek across the park to hit up the Matterhorn. Because if you don't have it timed perfectly, those waits can be absurd. And sometimes you go to the park and you're hoping for a fun day of activities and then you, at the end of the day, you wonder if you actually enjoyed all the park and all its amenities or if you actually spent that whole day waiting in, in line. And I remember in college going to Disneyland and seeing kind of an odd scene. I saw security guards stationed at the, at the end of every line before letting people on. And as I did some research, what I realized was that Disneyland had sort of a mini scandal hitting it at the time. In Disneyland, there's a policy where you and six other family members can get in the front of a line if you have what is called a disability pass. Essentially, if someone in your family has a physical handicap, 
you all as one party can bypass the wait and get to the front of the line. But what was happening was that families were selling those spots on their disability passes for thousands and thousands of dollars just to other random parkgoers who simply wanted to avoid the wait times, just so that they could get to the front of every line and enjoy every ride to their heart's content. That's how far some people will go to avoid waiting. That's the kind of culture of impatience we have today. Waiting seems like such a burden in our lives. It feels like a waste in our world. Yet here we are taught it is the exact opposite. In fact, Jeremiah writes that the Lord is good to those who wait for him. And it is because when we wait on the Lord, we are placing our hope entirely in God. And God's greatest desire is for us to fully trust in him. And so he will reward that when we choose to wait on him. We do not like waiting because we always feel like we could be doing something better with that time. But in reality, it is one of the most powerful things we can do as a Christian because in it, we are humbling ourselves, subduing our desires before the Lord, and we are saying that we are simply going to trust in Yahweh. In verses 28 through 30, demonstrate that as they wait, what does it look like? In reality, well, as they wait, they must simply endure what is to come to them. Instead of fighting back, they must simply turn the cheek and accept whatever attacks come their way. This is what waiting looks like. You do not try to act on what you think is best and not on what God thinks is best. It does not try to rush God's own plans. It does not try to place ourselves, our wills, over God's sovereign will. Rather, What waiting looks like is that it looks to the Lord in prayer for answers, vindication, and justice. It remains steadfast on what Christ has done for us, however long that may be. But verses 31 through 33 show the light at the end of the tunnel for that waiting. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Your waiting will indeed come to an end because verse 31 states that the Lord will not cast you off forever. He does not forget about you. In the midst of your trials or grief, there will come a time where you experience God's compassion. Here, Jeremiah begins to understand that this suffering isn't brought about because the Lord simply delights in it or because he simply chooses to make his people suffer, but he does so to demonstrate his compassion to us through that grief and that pain. God oftentimes demonstrates compassion to us through grief and pain. It is the same with us when we find ourselves enduring trials as we wait for the Lord. You will look back at your waiting and you will see that every second of it one day was done with a purpose. Ultimately, your pain will give way to a glory and a joy that is far beyond anything you could think or imagine. His steadfast love will show itself in its due time. Therefore, it is wise to wait upon the Lord. Waiting on the Lord may be one of the most difficult things ever asked of us. It may even seem impossible. 
But even then, the promises of God are very clear in our waiting. As Isaiah 40 writes, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. As we wait on God, we will find ourselves with a greater confidence in our faith, a more eager expectation that he will make himself known, and a greater certainty that God will do exactly what he has promised. But to truly experience that, to truly know that in our hearts, sometimes we must learn to wait. That's our our third section, watchful waiting. Now, our final section, divine deliverance. Divine deliverance. And we see that in verses 34 through 66, or the last half of this entire chapter. Now that Jeremiah has reminded himself of God's mercy, now that he has found strength again to wait upon the Lord, Jeremiah realizes now there is one more key attribute he can rely on to hope in God, and that is God's justice. As we have seen in the earlier chapters and even through the beginning half of this chapter, the Babylonians have gone through the entire spectrum of cruel punishment. But verses 34 through 36 makes it very clear that God will not let any justice go unnoticed. Verses 35 and 36 read, To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in a lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Jeremiah knows that God sees all acts committed by all men. And God, who is perfectly holy, and righteous, and omniscient, will not approve of any unjust act he sees committed. And this is the basis of Jeremiah's prayer and confidence. And not only is God just, but in verses 37 through 39, he also admits that God's will is sovereign. As verse 38 and 39 read, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man, about the punishment of his sins? Jeremiah here recognizes that both blessings and judgment ultimately come from God's mouth. And so no man can complain about the punishment of sin. And it is the basis of God's justice and his sovereignty that Jeremiah begins to appeal to God and trust that God will indeed deliver him. In verses 55 through 66, Jeremiah begins a prayer to the Lord for his deliverance. For example, verse 56, he asks the Lord to listen and not to close off his ears anymore to his cries. Then from verses 58 through 63, Jeremiah brings out all the sufferings before the Lord. He says that the Lord has seen all their vengeance, all their plots. The Lord has heard all the taunts from the Babylonians and not a single deed. Not a single sin committed against Jerusalem will go unnoticed by the Lord. And Jeremiah rests himself on that truth in prayer. Then verses 64 through 66, Jeremiah unleashes his final pleas before the Lord. He asks that verse 64, Babylon would be repaid in the exact same way according to the works that they had committed against Judah. In verse 65, he asks God specifically to give them dullness of heart Or in other words, Jeremiah wants God to curse them spiritually and leave them dead in their sins. Finally, verse 66, the final blow. He wants God to pursue them in anger. He wants God to pursue them with the same kind of wrath that was once poured out on his people, now poured out on Babylon. 
In verse 1, Jeremiah saw that God was the one afflicting him with his rod. But now, in this final verse, Jeremiah sees God as his redeemer. And notice that in this prayer, it is Jeremiah's confidence in God's justice that he can offer up this prayer to the Lord. He knows that while he may not see it himself, or he may not get to execute justice, how Jeremiah may specifically like it on on his terms, he knows that God will indeed act accordingly. God does not promise that we will experience full justice against the wrongs done against us in this life. Just look at the lives of godly people like Stephen in the book of Acts or John the Baptist, people who endured persecution and even death for living righteous lives without ever seeing earthly justice for the wrongs done against them. But what God does promise is that those who persist in unrepented sin and opposition will one day face their divine judge. And Jeremiah begins to recognize and anchor himself on that prayer. Despite knowing that he may not see it, that is enough for him to have hope. Those who repent and entrust themselves to the Lord and salvation in Christ understand that there will eventually be relief for injustice. We live in a world where injustice is just everywhere. Injustice is directed at others, directed at people groups, and even ourselves. And so often the instinct is to take matters in our own hands and to make things right. And I'm not saying that that is necessarily wrong. But what these verses teach us is that the greatest way we oppose injustice is to call and ask the Lord to deal with it according to his justice. And that is what Jeremiah is trying to do here, to trust that God is all-powerful and that he will indeed see all things and provide the right response and reaction to sin. We do not ultimately hope in man-made institutions or our own hands to bring down ultimate justice, though God can indeed use them. But we instead hope in Christ and trust that though we may not see justice in our lifetime, we are confident that in Christ's return, he will come and execute true justice. That one day, every deed and every action will be brought before his righteous throne. God's sovereignty stands behind us and everything that happens in this world both the just and the unjust. And scripture does not leave us with a terrifying conclusion that there is no reason for evil and injustice. But rather, we can rest on God's sovereignty, accept our circumstances, and trust that he will render all things according to his character and his purpose. As Jeremiah grieves over the injustices done to his people, he rests in the fact that Yahweh is still his divine deliverer. No longer the enemy, no longer the one afflicting with his rod, but the one who he can with bold assurance trust that his people will be delivered. And no matter what wrongs may have been done unfairly to us as well, we can rest in these same truths. From verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction, to verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, to now verse 64, you will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. There's a huge shift in tone that works its way through this chapter. From feeling like God is the one afflicting, to now 
God is, the, God is the ally on their side. But the pain and struggle is still there. It has remained the same throughout this poem, and it actually will remain the same for a long time. What has changed was not the surroundings, but the perspective. In the first two sermons, we've already learned a lot about the practice of lament. But the truth is that believer and non-believer alike lament. We all go through times of mourning and pain that will just drive us to the floor in tears. But what makes lament unique for the believer is what we've talked about this entire sermon, the matter of perspective. For the believer, our laments are rooted in what we believe about the nature of God. As Christians, our laments can and do mourn the tragedy that has happened, but it weeps while anchoring itself in the bedrock of God's character and his promises for the future. And if we truly believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again to secure us an eternity in heaven, our perspectives will always be different from what the world may tell us. Because we have tasted and seen the Lord's goodness, like Jeremiah, as we, as we lament, we can call to mind and therefore have hope. We use our laments to cry out and to express the sorrows that we feel. But we also use our laments to rehearse the truths that we know about God. And as we seek to find comfort in our sorrows, we end up finding what we have always believed and what we've always been taught all along as Christians. God's mercies never end. Waiting on him is never a waste. And God will indeed deliver because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Life is painful. Suffering is hard. But painful and hard do not always necessarily mean bad because we have a God who is good. And he promises that he will bring all things together for glory. And that will always be grounds for us to rejoice. As we learn in this chapter, hope does not come from circumstances changing. It comes from what we believe. And what we believe will always sustain us through our highest praises, but also through our deepest mourning as well. As Christians, we lament, not just by sight, but by faith as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, truly, we do praise you for your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. We come before you bringing our burdens and our suffering before you today, and we ask that you would lead us to call to mind and therefore have hope. And as we do so, we ask that you would give us the strength as we wait upon you, and that we trust that you will indeed meet us with both justice and peace. We ask that our laments would always be rooted in what we believe and know to be true about you. And in doing so, we even find something as sad as our laments to lead us to worship you. And so we lift this up in your son's name. Amen.